It's rolling, man. This is David Steinberg, chairman, CEO, co-founder, Zeta Global. It is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker Zeta. We're going to get into Zeta. We're going to get into your business. We're going to get into the journey to going public. You've taken companies public before, but not in this sort of environment, I'm assuming, a little bit. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I would also say, David, before I welcome you officially to OK Computer. That wasn't the welcome? That was kind of the welcome. That was a pretty nice welcome. You and I met professionally, but I would say our relationship is primarily social. Wouldn't you say so? I don't remotely think of our relationship as no, professional, we, so we, it's got to be met all social. Like bankers and I this know, and that. And serious. This. We yeah. were in Vegas. It you was, were it like, was, putting on a show. Yeah, no, it was good. But then you and I just quickly morphed our relationship into dining and cocktailing. and. Well, we uh, tend to have very similar things we enjoy, food and wine and fun. We're cut from a, a similar ilk, I would say. You're you? cut from a big Bigger ilk than I oh, am th- So that's days, a fat but... joke, people. Um, so David is, he is on a keto diet. So we, no, I'm just kidding. No, I am. Are you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've kind of talked to me a little bit about that. You do a little bit of the intermittent fasting, correct? And then you also just avoid carbs like the plague. And then is that also sugar? Yeah, well, there's no more carb than sugar. But the six days a week, I intermittent fast between 16 and 18 hours and eat as few carbohydrates as I can. You can't say none, but I try to keep it to zero. And then Sundays, I sort of cycle the ketosis. I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss. Yeah. And his book, The 4-Hour Body, which has nothing to do with four hours, it's just sort of his brand, is sort of like the primer for how I built the diet I'm on. Yeah. I'm working on a three-hour body, so hopefully that one will take (laughs) off once I get that out. The good news is is you are so handsome. Yeah. You can pull this new shape off. I mean, I really appreciate that. (laughs) Um, So let me – is this a warm-up for the Tim Ferriss show or no? Tim has never invited me on, so I – you know. So it's funny. I'll be really honest with you. You know, we started this podcasting company, Guy Adami and myself, in the start of 2021. And, you know, I had listened to lots of different podcasts. The first podcast I ever listened to was Recode, Kara Swisher's podcast. And I really got into that, her access to people, the way in which she can get them to talk in ways that they just don't want to talk about. So that was kind of fascinating. And, you know, I got a little into Bill Simmons. I really enjoyed the sports ones and this now. But what's interesting to me, like some of these feel like they've just kind of gone off the rails. Like I listened to Balaji Saravasan on Tim Ferriss last year. It was four hours, four hour podcast. That's so, long. Yeah, you know, we're not we're not going four hours. I was going to say, yeah. come on, Dan. this is not I, like I, I don't. Of I love Sting you, podcast but. or anything like that. <laughs> I was trying to figure out like what the attraction to that is. What we've tried to do is really digestible, kind of accessible, you know, sort of content. And so, like, taking a very complex man like you and breaking him down. You want to be like the TikTok of uh, podcasts. Yeah. All right. Well, here's the deal. Let's let's start with this. I want to get to Zeta Global. I have actually been very fortunate to get to know much of your management team. You understand your product. I've actually had the pleasure of speaking at Zeta Live last year. I hope I get the invite. Yes. Back well, for, no, for we just year. sent it out. The 29th of September will be Zeta Live too. I will be there. So I've gotten to know this company, but it's funny. I was listening to you on that Ice podcast. Okay, and you said you used to get this question, Zeta, who all the time, and I think it was really interesting the way you framed it. Not so much anymore. Now that you're a publicly traded company, you have over half a billion dollars in annual revenue, and I think you have a five-year plan to get above a billion. You have a market cap. Three-year plan. Okay, three-year plan. Okay. Oh, you put it out in 2020. There you go. Correct. Right. We okay. put it out in 2020 for 2025. It's. I don't know if you 
checked. We're about halfway through 2022. Yeah, I did check. I guess the main point there is you are competing with behemoths, Salesforce and Oracle and Adobe. And so we're going to talk about all of that. But what I find really interesting about you, and I think oftentimes when you and I are together with other groups, we're talking about like kind of shared history in markets, shared history in investing. You're not just an entrepreneur. You have been investing your own capital, a family office in public and private equity. So I want to hit a little bit about that, but I see you as a serial entrepreneur. And so talk to me a little bit about how that journey started, because again, you started a cellular company in 1991, Sterling, was that it? I yep. mean, most no, people exactly only right. knew of the, like the big bag phones back then or the ones that were built into cars. What itch were you scratching like, soon out of college and doing that? Well, first of all, it's great to be on the show. I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of you personally and, and this show, so I appreciate it. But I became an entrepreneur for the same reason many of us become entrepreneurs. I came out of school in 1990. It was the great recession of that day, and I couldn't get a job. And the truth of the matter is that when you come out of school and you don't have a job, your opportunity cost on starting a business is very, very low. I originally started on the Hill, and I was there for a short period of time, working for Senator Kennedy and under Senator Biden on the Judiciary Committee. I was sort of a senior intern and legislative correspondent, and that was really cool. But I figured out quickly I would not be a good government employee. That was just not my— well, I mean, well, it was Drug test? What no, no, I'm just, just kidding. I'm kidding. Come reasons. on, but, man. Uh, yeah, the, we can cut that. We can cut that. Yeah, well, you, you don't have to cut it. The good news is I would have passed. Yeah, all right, as, fair as enough. As far as I'll admit to on but this the, podcast. But really interesting, in 1990, we have not had this much in our nation's history. That was the 10th year— of a Republican administration, and you were working for Democrats. What was that like? Well, you know, that's been my ecosystem for a long time. You would have called me back then a liberal Democrat. Now you would call me a cons- an extremely conservative so Democrat. So you're like more to the center, is Yeah, I'm like saying. many people. So I'm you like, were a bit progressive back then? No. My point is my politics have not changed, but oh, the definition of what you believe has changed, yes, right? Yeah. Because the extreme to the left and the extreme to the right have moved very, very far. Yeah. My only point is now you could call me either a liberal Republican or a conservative Democrat. I find them to be very similar in the center. But I started working on telecom issues and I got interested in it. And I ended up in the insurance business for a very short period of time, which was really interesting. And Selling? Yep, selling wow. insurance, okay. ac- accidental disability wow. insurance to self-employed people. Wow. Uh, that was a bit of a grind. You yeah. Know, did, did a little bit of door-to-door. Yeah. It was, was very interesting. I remember calling my dad, who was an Ivy League-educated MBA accountant, and telling him I was going to leave the Hill to go sell insurance, and he told me I was nuts. I called my stepfather, who was a very successful entrepreneur who had not even finished college, and he said it would be the single greatest thing you could ever do. No way. And worked out well, taught me how to take no yeah. and move through it and, and get to yes. Well, that's and, important. I mean, people think of tech companies just filled with engineers and solving big problems, but they don't get deployed unless people are there selling them. And some of the most important right. people in tech organizations are those salespeople. When you think of like a Mark Benioff, the founder oh, yeah. of, nobody, uh, of nobody Salesforce. Better. Wasn't he the biggest salesman Oracle ever had? And yeah. he's like, you know what? I can get engineers and I can build a stack, but I need great people to sell it. Right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I forget the exact stat, but I think they asked a few years ago, they asked the Fortune 500 CEOs, what was the attribute 
that was most responsible for getting to where they were, I think 490 of the 500 said sales. I'm sure there's other answers, but that's where I came out of. And I ended up getting a gift certificate for a free cellular phone. And I went in to get my free cell phone. And I asked the woman who was working, what are you doing? And she explained the whole business. And I literally walked out the door and said, I am in the wrong business. And a few months later, there was an interesting blow up with my then boss, Mm -hmm. who's a great guy. We just, we didn't see something eye to eye. And I don't think he thought there was any scenario that someone of my age making the amount of money I was making at that time would ever leave because he obviously didn't know me that well. Yeah. But I left and I started Sterling Cellular in my basement. Wow. All right. So that was a cellular leasing company to businesses? No, it wasn't leasing. We activated cellular phones for Cellular One on a B2B strategy. So we came at it with the premise back then that a cell phone would be an incredibly good investment for productivity. And we primarily focused on a sales force that could go business to business. And we were very successful very early. Yeah. And so obviously that was before there was a huge retail demand for these sorts of products, but it helped prove the concept. And I think it's interesting as a a market participant, a public market participant, really, I entered the markets in 1997 or so. People forget, they think it's a dot-com bubble. It was really the telco bubble. Well, that was the first bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, without that huge drive for like fiber, you wouldn't have been able to do that. So how did this new company, Sterling, so you were leveraging off of this B2B and this was going to be the early adopters in cellular. How did you guys progress over the course of the 90s and what was the outcome? Well, we ended up selling that business and doing well on it. And then I started Sterling Communications because obviously I had very limited naming capabilities. And that business was heavily focused on retail. We ended up building a large retail footprint And the way we built our retail strategy was it was sort of a barbell effect. It was very large stores that had install bays to install phones and cars out the back. Mm -hmm. In the front of the store, you had a retail distribution. And in the middle, we had kiosks or desks where we ran salespeople. So that was one side of the distribution. The other side of the distribution is we were putting kiosks in malls. And it worked, and then we ended up selling that, and then I started Sterling Wireless once again. And that was a telemarketing business where we ended up with, quite frankly, a large number of telemarketers selling wireless products virtually to people at home, which was the bridge to what became my then company in Phonic, which became the largest seller of wireless phones on the internet in the world. Wow. So you just kept on moving throughout different stages of the cellular progression. And then obviously, again, started a business, then went to retail, but then ease of use of actually onboarding retail customers. It's funny, my first cell phone was in Dallas, Texas, Whatever the company was, what was Southwest Bell? I was going to say it was Southwestern Bell Mobile Systems, probably. Yeah, and it was an Oki, and I still have it to this day. Maybe we'll put a picture of it in the show notes. It's like this big, and it's got a massive battery on the back. And you know what they used to do? They used to send good-looking women to offices. We employed lots of them. And I'm telling you, when this woman came in in a conference, it was like the scene from the office where someone's in there selling something, and like all the guys bought cell phones. None of the women in the in the office. Listen, we had we had well, we also had good-looking men. So we. would send a team in of a good-looking female and male. Yeah. and Not you, know, you? Well, I didn't make the cut. You were the you know, closer. I wish. You I, were the closer. I, Wait, I, so you had three iterations of Sterling. Yep. You sold them. The first oh, one you sold to AT&T? Actually, I sold all three to what is today called AT&T, but all three different companies. Oh, wow. Like, sold one to Southwestern Bell Mobile Systems. I sold one 
to singular. And then I sold one actually in a management buyout to my then team. And then they sold it to Southwestern Bell Mobile Systems DBA Cellular One. So it's sort of like, but, but everything, you know, Southwestern Bell rolled everybody back up other than Verizon. So it became the two of them that became the old AT&T. Yeah. I remember trading in the late 90s, all those CLACs. I mean, it was kind of interesting. There was this unbundling, the great unbundling, which at the time, if you were like a trader, these were very volatile sort of stocks. You know, people forget. You hear about this crap. You know, now you have a publicly traded company. You have, people will talk about a meme stock or this. And you're like, there were meme stocks in the 90s. Remember iOmega? You remember some of these CLACs? Like, it all existed. They just didn't have the ability the virality didn't exist among retail in a way. And by the time it got to retail, it was over. You didn't have the trading platforms back then, which have really become ubiquitous today. And of course, the internet has ultimately leveled the playing field as it relates to the dissemination of information. So back then, information was the key to all success in trading. Today, information can often be the key to failure in trading because of the fake information that can be out there. And things could go viral on closed platforms. Like, for instance, on Yahoo Finance message boards, it could really build up there and a handful of people could trade off of that information or make decisions based on. But it didn't have the ability to really go viral in a verifiable way because we really didn't have social networks in a way. And I just, again, I remember being on a trading desk and hearing like in 1999, hey, do you see this thing on Yahoo Finance? finance or something like that, but without an ability to verify it. And it just didn't have that sort of thing. So I think it's interesting. But Telco was at the center of that. All right. So you sold these businesses. So wait, was the only boss in your life other than Ted Kennedy, this guy who you had this dust up at the insurance company? Is that like, yeah. is that it? Technically, Ted Kennedy was not my boss. Yeah. I reported to a guy named Thurgood Marshall Jr., Goody, Goody Marshall. Good name. He worked for, I believe, Jeff Blattner or Carolyn Ossolinic at the time, who then worked for somebody. I, I was, I mean, to say I was junior and an intern was like, that's what I was. But yeah, I haven't had a boss in a long thought time. about that since well, your wife, My wife is You're my right. boss. That's exactly what I was going to say. Kristen is is definitely my boss. She, Friend of the show. Uh, she tells me where to be and when to be there. And then my, my assistant team is my other boss. So do you go, were you going from one thing to the next, like one sterling to the next sterling to the next? And then, and, and then in Phonic, bang. Yeah, so when we sold the last iteration of sterling, we were at the closing table. And I said to the guy at AT&T, listen, I'll take a discount on the transaction if you let me keep the fulfillment facility the distribution platform, and you give me a five-year exclusive contract to sell wireless phones over the internet. Now, you got to understand, in 1997, he thought I was a total idiot. He's like, great. And that turned out to be a good contract for us. By the way, it was a great contract for AT&T because we were so far out front of anybody else that they were able to really piggyback on our success. And listen, AT&T has been a great partner to me personally for many, many years. All right, so talk to me. So Infonic, you take it public in the late 90s? We did. We took it public, and it was a great success. In 2004, we were the second largest tech IPO behind this little company called Google. They uh, fared better than us, to say the least. All right, so let's talk about your long 
history as a friend, as a partner, I'm assuming also as a mentor with John Scully. Okay, so John Scully was the former CEO of Apple in the early 80s. Steve Jobs was kind of transitioning out of an operator sort of role. The famous line, so Scully was the CEO president of Pepsi at the time, which Pepsi, was a yeah. massive, you know, very large company. Yeah, yeah, still, yeah. still is. Okay, yes. So Jobs really wanted this guy and said what to him? They were standing in Steve Jobs' new penthouse on Fifth Avenue that he was not even begun the renovation yet. It was empty, and Steve looked up over Central Park, and then he looked John in the eye, and of course John has told me this, I was not there, and said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? Yeah. Yeah, so that was the early 80s, and so we know that that was right before they introduced the Mac with that big 1984 commercial and everything like that. So at what point did you and John connect? Well, not Uh, then. I was was pretty young back then. But no, John and I met, I guess it's about 22 years ago now. We were at a YPO conference, a Young Presidents Organization, which I was a member now a member of old president's organization. I was going to say. I call it OPO. You beat me me to it. I call it OPO. They call it YPO Gold nowadays, but I I call it OPO. And John was being interviewed by Larry King on a panel. And he came off and everybody was waiting to talk to John. I waited my turn. And, you know, everybody was asking about Apple and Pepsi and all these guys. So I look at him. I was like, John, you know, I'd just seen this miniseries called The Pirates of Silicon Alley. And did you get a chance to see that? And what did you think of the guy who played you? And he literally stopped what he was doing. And he was like, he said it was the best miniseries at that time. Noah Wilde, who had been on ER, had played Jobs. And Anthony Michael Hall, I can't believe I remember this. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. From vacation. From from all the vacation movies, had played... Correct. Yeah, yeah. Sixteen Old Candles. School, Great dude. movie. It was Ross, though. Great. Ross is really the thing. That yeah, was I agree. The, well, he Ross makes that location. movie in the yeah. roles in the end yeah, with, yeah. with the girl. But, so wait. But, so he played. So hold on. He so played? Anthony Michael Hall played Bill Gates. Okay. Okay. I don't actually remember who played him that time, but he he stopped what he was doing. He was like, the guy who played Steve Jobs must have channeled him. So. Two funny things happen. So we start talking, and then he moves on to the next person. It just so happens one of my buddies, it was in D.C., that that event, which is where I lived at the time. And I got the name tags changed so I could sit next to John at dinner that night. So I sort of manipulated that. I never told—well, John knows that now. I told him years later. He actually, one time we were out, he was like, you changed those name tags, right? I know you well enough. I was like, of course I changed those. You just chatted him up the whole day. No, no. I had just founded Infonic, and I talked to him about my theory on technological innovation, how it moves through three different phases. All right, let's hear him. Lay him on me. You have the development phase. You have the— monetization phase, and you have the commoditization phase. And if I was doing this on a whiteboard, I would write development, straight line, monetization, straight line, commoditization, and then you would draw a circle that would be halfway between monetization and commoditization. And I explained to him how that's where product distribution can move from fiscal to virtual. You can still make enough money on the product that it's worth doing, but it's commoditized enough that somebody doesn't need to touch it. 
before you buy it. And at that point, almost all cell phones were being sold in a retail environment. And he looked at me. He was like, that's so right. And I said, well, I'm going to capitalize on that. I've started this new company. And he was like, you know what, David? The next time you're in New York, you should come into my office. He was at 90 Park at the time. He was co-officed with Kodak. And... I was living in D.C., so miraculously, I was in New York that following Tuesday. When, when he wasn't available Monday, I was in New York Tuesday as well. If his assistant at the time had said Wednesday, I would have said, oh, I'm staying over. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I went up, and we were supposed to have a 30-minute meeting. I ended up leaving five hours later with John becoming the seed round investor and really became my mentor. And now, today, it's really my partner and one of my best friends. Okay, well, have you ever asked him, again, you and I have talked about him a bunch offline, and it seems like... I don't want John to hear this and think I'm yapping. No, 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 that that was the first of many partnerships and and business. And We've done, yeah, three or four companies together. Yeah, which is amazing. Uh, The one thing you got to ask him, though, was he happy with Jeff Daniels' portrayal of him? Because that guy is a legend. No, the answer is... Categorically, yes. In fact, he visited him on set. Oh, no way. Okay. Yeah, and it's a great story. We do this, we used to do, we haven't done it the last two years because of COVID, but we used to do a big master's event every year for our big clients and stakeholders. Yeah, it's great. I'll see you there this year. If we do it this year, you're on the I'm list. Not a client or a stakeholder. Well, no, but you could come be a speaker. Okay, fair enough. So, because what I'm happened, in. we had to convert it over to the Zeta speaking series at the Masters. So, all of our big clients. Oh, that's cool. If we didn't do that, they weren't allowed to come. Like Are you a golfer? I am a mediocre golfer at best. I'm a good tennis player. Yeah, no, I hear that about you. I'm not a golfer. I did go to the Masters in 2019, and I will tell you this that it's probably the best sporting event I've it's ever amazing. been to in my yeah, life. It's It's hard to explain to somebody how great an event the Masters is. But what we do is we take a bunch of houses, we big dinners, and John every year gives an incredible talk. And one year he talked about the movie and Jeff Daniels and how great he was. Is he sick of talking about Apple? Because he he wasn't there that long. He he definitely was there eight years. He took him from 500 million in sales to, I think, seven or eight billion. He was the CEO when they did the 1984 ad. I think that people step over that. He was there quite some time. Well, you know, it's funny because I read a couple of the Jobs biographies, and then again, maybe they were just a bit more generous to his legacy than they were to some of the stuff that went on there. Again, and I'm not asking you to opine on what he thinks. It's a really interesting piece of history. And when I think about you as an entrepreneur, and especially in technology, I'm sure being able to leverage off of his experience is probably just amazing, right? John and his wife, Diane, are Kristen and my amongst our closest friends. They are both amazing. She ran a huge construction business before they married, and they're just a powerhouse couple, and and I love being with both of them. And whenever I'm confused about something or call... I call John, and and John now likes to joke. He said, I I used to call him on all my questions. Now he calls me on questions. I call him on questions. We go back and forth on it. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great, too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about 
better sleep and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here. And I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash okay. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. Let's talk about how you guys came up with Zeta because this is the real deal right now. You are in New York City. You have this company that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Also, a good size deal in a market in 2021. You guys went public. Talk to us a little bit about taking a step back. I met you in 2017 and I think you told me probably about 4 or 5 years we're going to be going public so you probably you had a plan then you had a 5 year plan then. So I like to always break businesses yeah. into one and 5 year plans. Yeah. I think a 2 or 3 year plan is too short. Yeah. A 5 year plan without a 1 year plan is too pie in the sky. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as we finish 2025, we'll roll out 2030. But you'll already have your one-year plan in 2024. for yeah. Correct. So how does that change, though? Because, again, you've started companies from scratch. You've built them up. You've sold them. You see how they operate in a bigger entity and what you might have done differently. How do you do things differently when you are a private company on a way to being a public company? Because the shareholder base has changed. How you communicate with shareholders change. You have to deal with Wall Street you know, and analysts and all that whole apparatus. I think, first of all, the mistake I made last time was trying to do everything myself. So now we've got Chris Greiner, who's one of the world's best CFOs. He and Scott, his head of IR, who's also exceptional. He was at EMC and then Dell before joining us, really own that component of the business. Steve Gerber, our president and COO, who you know, and I focus on running the day-to-day operation of the business. And Steve Vine, who you also know when you're having dinner with tonight, is our general counsel. And, and I like to joke, really, you know, keeps us all on top of our game. And you could go all the way out to our chief technology officer, you know, Chris Momberg, our chief data officer, Nish Gore, our head of our activations business, Will Margoloff, and Jeff Nimeroff, our chief information officer. We just have an incredible and very deep team. The other big difference is I actually let them do their jobs now. So now, all right. Now, so this is something that you've learned that. over time. Yep. I literally joke, when I was a super young CEO, I knew I could do everything better than everybody. When I became a middle-aged CEO, which was in my mid-30s, I felt like I could do it better, but I hired people to do the job, and then I told them what to do. Yeah. As an old CEO at 53, I know that all of these people can do their their jobs better than I can. But what I do really well is strategy, M&A, and relationship management. And I try to focus on those things. But think about this. And I would say that this is probably one of your biggest accomplishments with Zeta right now is that you put together an all-star team of operators around you, right? It is literally the thing I am most proud of. It's the team that we've built, how cohesively it works. And there is not one person on my senior leadership team that couldn't be running another company. Yeah. 
That's amazing. All right. So one thing, though, just for anybody listening here who tries to figure out how we book guests here, I mean, I think, David, you just gave up our dirty little secret. I got to buy you a steak to get you to come on the show. Actually, what we do do is that you are going to get a bottle of Como's tequila. And, you know, from our good friend, Joe, Joe Marchese. Which right? who, I thought Joe was coming today. No, well, he's I think he's in parts unknown. But everybody who comes on the pod, they get a bottle of Como's. Then. Well, so there you go. I will happily take one. I, I like that. I don't drink a lot of tequila, but when I do, yeah. it's Como's. Oh, there you go. All right, that's a good plug there. All right, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about Zeta. What was the mission? So when I left my last company, we had built a very large marketing business inside of a platform called Wirefly, and we were spending a lot of money on advertising. And I realized how inefficient the marketing ecosystem was. We needed, at the time, I believe it was seventeen or eighteen different vendors to help us with our marketing data vendors, analytics vendors, CRM vendors, activation vendors, all of that stuff. And when John and I first founded Zeta, the original vision was effectively threefold. One, we wanted to put everything a marketer needed in one place. Two, we believed that first-party opted-in data would be a differentiator in where the regulatory environment was going. And three... At that time, we believed that to truly use data effectively and make it actionable, you had to understand automation. Now, today, we call that artificial intelligence. Back then, 14 years ago, we were using the vernacular automation, which then led to machine learning, which led to deep learning, which then led to AI. So this is kind of fascinating. So 07, you were already worried about data regulation? Yep. And this was basically a concern that you felt firsthand at your... It wasn't just regulation. It was that if a consumer had opted to receive an offer from you, they'd be more apt at receiving that offer, right? And then the ability to begin to synthesize what people's intent was, was part of the original foundation of the business, because we felt like, listen, the single greatest business in the history of marketing is probably Google, right? Why? Because people literally tell Google what they want. (laughs) I want a new car, right? And you don't get to a higher level of intent than that. We get pretty close now because what we've done is we've built, you know, we've got our data cloud and then we're ingesting trillions of marketing signals that we can identify to an individual. We then build an intent-based score on what does that individual intend to do next? Do you intend to subscribe to a credit card, buy a new car, and if so, what color, make, model, where are you gonna do it from a geography perspective, and will you be credit approved for the product that you're interested in? Or does somebody about to churn off a cellular platform? So has somebody begun the discovery process of buying a new wireless phone while they're one of our client's customers? So. All of that then synthesizes down to a Zeta ID number, and that ID number masks the personally identifiable information of the consumer. So what we're doing is we're building what's called a consumer data platform, or a CDP. Our client's data goes into it. We match usually around 85 86% of the data to our U.S.-based data cloud, which is 235 million opted-in Americans. And we import an average of 1,700 data elements per person. 
We then remove their name, we remove their social security number, and we replace it with Zaid ID number 13578. And then the algorithm begins to do its work. It begins to look at what you're reading, what you're doing, your transactions, what your discovery is, what you're clicking on, where you come from, where you go to. And it goes back to our client and says, Zaid ID number 13578 has just hit a 60% probability of wanting to buy your exact product, and there's a 92% propensity to be credit approved. And if they say yes, we then begin a curriculum of contact to that Zaid ID number. One of the things I think a lot of people have not figured out, Dan, is that the CDP is a little bit of a Trojan horse because the clients learn all of this stuff about the consumer but they have no ability to market to them unless they use the Zeta marketing platform. So all of the knowledge is wasted. If you want to make it actionable, you have to use us. Yeah. All right. So this is interesting. So this was from your, your Q2 earnings call that was just, I think, a couple of weeks ago here. You said, as other vendors have lost their ability to measure with precision due to changes by large technology providers, marketers, and looking for alternatives, and because we are not dependent on Apple's IDFA tracking mechanism or third-party cookies to identify individuals and measures business outcomes, we are able to leverage our data and our software advantage to deliver a better return on investment for marketers today and in the future. All right, so that well, was well done. That was well read. Well, that's Nick. Thanks, Nick, for that. What is interesting about that, and I looked over your results. I was actually on vacation that week, but I kind of looked over your results. Then I knew we were going to be doing this a little bit, and I thought that's really interesting because there's so many data platforms right now that have literally been taken to the woodshed, right, by oh, changes yeah. by these large platforms, well, especially the mobile focused platforms. Right. So talk to me a little bit about that because that must be something that really resonates with investors. Investors who are looking for these sort of platform investments who've seen some of these. I'm not sure investors understand the implications of this yet, right? So when you think about it, I think there's this premise because a lot of the mobile focused marketing platforms have come out and said the reason they're missing numbers is because there's a systemic issue or a sort of a global marketing slowdown. Now, most companies that are focused on digital marketing did better than people expected. Google, above expectations. Apple was well above expectations. Zeta was well above expectations. We grew revenue by 28 plus percent. We grew EBITDA by 63 percent. We grew free cash flow by 93 percent. And a lot of that is because in a downturn, there's always a massive migration to return on investment marketing. That's happening in the backdrop of very large tech companies sort of eliminating the mobile-focused company's ability to build attribution models. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but if you don't get the feedback loop for the transaction, the algorithm becomes broken because it can't learn what's happening, right? So because it's Zeta, We've never used Apple's IDFA, and we do not use that third-party cookie to identify people or build our attribution models. I like to say as the tide rolled out, we stayed at the same level, and most of the other companies that are out there that focus on those things have dropped fairly dramatically. Now, I think we're a case where the baby was thrown out with the bathwater, right? Everybody said, oh, they're not going to do well because marketing's turning down. And 
quite frankly, not only did we beat Q2, we raised Q3 and we raised the year. So does those results and that guidance, do they reflect what you're talking about, where marketers are actually recognizing the ROI on, on the... Yeah, so what, what happened initially in Q2 is a number of our existing clients increased what they spent with us quickly. What we also announced, and I want to be careful with what I can and cannot talk about... No forward-looking comments here. Okay, exactly. There you go. In the second quarter of this year, we saw record RFP requests. So you should assume that if you're seeing record RFPs, you would think those numbers would continue to ripple through. Yeah. All right. Talk to me a little bit about like thinking about in your career now. Okay. So you've been at the forefront of some big secular shifts in technology and Back telco to being and stuff old, like that. I hear yeah, exactly. you. Yes, yes. But what is it like competing with companies like Adobe and Oracle? I mean, these are companies that probably, you know, 25 years ago when you were just a young entrepreneur, they were still really big back then. Salesforce well, didn't exist yet. I was going to say yeah. Salesforce wasn't yeah. around. Yeah. Oracle was fully focused on databases yeah. and Adobe was a publishing platform. But what I would say is it's a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, they're all incredible companies. And if I wanted a Salesforce automation tool, I'm calling Salesforce. If I need a financial services package or a proprietary database, we're open source, but you know, I would call Oracle, right? If I needed a publishing partner, there's nobody to call but Adobe, right? But when you look inside those businesses, what most investors do not understand we're not really competing with them. We're competing with Exact Target, who Salesforce bought. We're competing with Responsys, who Oracle bought and largely has ignored. And we're competing with Neolane, which Adobe bought. So we're not necessarily competing with the mothership. We're competing with the clouds that they acquired to build that. And the truth of the matter is, we were named. By Forrester. I've also got to be careful how I say this. If you look at the Forrester marketing automation report that just published, we are the furthest to the right and the highest in the leaderboard. And what they said was Zeta is number one because we are the best at solving and simplifying complex marketing problems. I paraphrase that just a bit, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, we made the decision five to seven years ago, back to one of your earlier questions, it would be very difficult to make that decision today as a public company. But we made the decision as a private company to take our platform, which was good but antiquated, and instead of migrating or fixing it again, we decided to put it into maintenance mode and we used about 400 of our full-time engineers for three years and we built what is today called the Zeta Marketing Platform. So what does that mean when you roll out a completely new platform? It means you can put artificial intelligence as native to the application layer. Every one of our competitors, it's outside of the application. Why does that matter? Because our marketing clients, as it relates to CTV, programmatic, online video, often have to make a decision in one to three milliseconds. If you want to crunch that much data that fast, you better not need to step out of your platform via API to another platform to see if it works. The other thing that Forrester noted was that we put data 
as native to the application layer as well. So our data cloud, which allows you to know everything you need to know on making a decision, is also native to the application layer. So not only do we have a great user interface, not only do we have a great reporting tool, but we're able to do this stuff substantially faster than anybody else. And because everything we do is new, it's 100% cloud-based. So it sounds like just kind of looking through those results and, and kind of hearing you talk about it a little bit, you guys are executing, I would say, very well in a difficult environment. So let's talk about that difficult environment. You're a CEO of a company. You have, what, over 1,000 employees? Yeah, it's about 1,500. 1,500. You're, you're all over the world. Uh, you have offices yep. all over the world. Before COVID started, we had 26 offices on four continents. Wow. And so let's just talk about how you're feeling, not as it relates to, let's say, Zeta, but you hobnob with a bunch of CEOs, you talk to a lot, of big, a lot of big investors. No, but there's a certain sense for like what's going on, where we are. I think a lot of CEOs who, let's say, did pretty well in difficult environment, which was a pandemic, which was the definition of a black swan event. No one saw that coming. And so there were people like you as a lead up into the dot com or the lead up into the financial crisis. People were really nervous. They saw activity that was going on that was not going to be able to last for too much longer, but no one could put their finger on the point in which it was going to pop. So now you think about it, I think at one point in late 2020, when we had the vaccine announcements, we had a different administration, we had a lot of things started turning. I think a lot of people thought by mid-2020, this would be in the rearview mirror, and it's not. You know, I think people, first of all, discounted the value of the amount of money Stimulus, yeah. the Fed Monetary printed and, fiscal, right? and the, you know, Congress passed. And, and listen, you're pumping trillions of dollars. The reality is, as that created the inflationary environment we're in today, which was compounded by the first ground war in Europe since World War II, you end up in a circumstance where it's interesting. I think, my opinion, there's some businesses that are having limited to no issues. There's some businesses that are aided by what's going on. When you look at a lot of the consumer products, and retail supply chain issues supply chain right they're getting yeah. they've got a multi front war right you've got yeah. you know whether inflation's 9.3 or 8.5 it's yeah. still the highest in 40 years and it's largely driven by energy and as you know better than anybody nothing drives cost creep like energy it's not just energy it's certainly gas right but getting goods to market yeah. becomes substantially more expensive Chemicals become substantially more expensive. Rubber becomes substantially more expensive. Building houses becomes substantial. All of that goes up when energy prices go up, which lowers expendable income and disposable income and creates challenges there. What we're seeing at Zeta is that's causing marketers to focus more on return on investment than I've seen them focus on in many, many years. Now, We've been screaming about return on investment for 10 years, and, and a lot of people haven't cared. Now, all of a sudden, they're waking up. And you know what I like to say is, is Machiavelli first said, never waste a crisis. Mm -hmm. Churchill has since taken credit for that one, but you can split credit. 
again, digital companies that did not rely on supply chains or energy inputs or some of the stuff during the pandemic did very well. I think what has gone on over the last year has been that the valuations got pushed up. And this is not on the companies. It's not on their guidance. It's not on bankers. It's on what investors were willing to pay for a scarce group of assets, right? Well, you also, listen, if during COVID, I like to joke, there were two sides of the trade, right? On one side of the trade, you had people who own Broadway theaters. On the other side of the trade, you had Zoom or Clorox. And at Zeta, we were sort of in the upper third of that trade. We were benefited by the downturn. But I want to be clear. I think we are going to continue to see the migration of analog and linear media to digital at the current or an accelerating pace. Last week, shockingly, there was a report that in last week, there were more people who consume TV via streaming than via linear for the first time ever. At the same time, Netflix has publicly announced they're going to move to an ad-supported model. We very quietly mentioned on our call last quarter, our connected TV business grew over 200% last quarter. And we believe that connected TV, which is also, you know, over-the-top TV and, and the other things, is the future of marketing. Zeta's marketing platform, along with its data cloud, is purpose-built to be able to identify people in any digital environment. So we can target an ad to you while you're watching a football game for a bottle of wine while we your neighbor might want a Budweiser. I actually been saying this for years. I think it's going to be massive. You know exactly who is watching that thing. You don't know that on linear TV. Correct. That's right. No, but I also want to say again, we never share the consumer's personally identifiable information of course, with yeah. any enterprise. I just mean it, from a targeting standpoint. I, I just, though, I'm, so, I'm trained. Yeah, to say yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I want to follow up with Joe, maybe, on the space. He and I have talked a lot about this. Joe, Joe's very yeah, smart yeah. on the space. I think we should do another pod on that because I actually think some people are looking at like a Netflix and a, and a Disney Plus and what they have to do to kind of capture these people that are coming off of linear TV and these cable bundles. And I just think that this could actually be a boon for them in a way. So, all right, well, listen, let's save that for another conversation. I really appreciate you laying it out on Zeta. Congratulations on, again, executing, I think it sounds like very well in a difficult environment. So the next time you come back, we'll have an update on your one-year plan. You already guided up for the uh, balance of the year here. And then your history as an entrepreneur at a time where I was also coming out of school in the 90s and watching that trajectory is pretty fascinating. Not many of my friends did what you did, is get right to being an entrepreneur right out of school. So your history as a successful one over the last 30 years is really amazing, David. Well, first of all, you're way too kind as somebody who is incredibly successful in every median you have ever approached. But, well, no, you are. Well, maybe the diet. But other than that, (laughs) the reality is that, you know, I really, really think highly of you. And, you know, as I said, I get invited to do a lot of podcasts. This is the second one I've ever done in my life. Well, we appreciate it here. And we hope you come back to OK Computer. Thanks a lot, David Steinberg, CEO, founder, chairman of Zeta Global.